Good morning, everybody. <coughs> uh, yep, that's a good morning, believe it or not. Jeez. <coughs> oh, <coughs> See, that's how you know it's real. It truly is morning. These truly are my first words because I didn't have to cough until I had to use my vocal cords. <coughs> so... I'm going to start the morning off with uh, what I'm listening to. Integrity Radio.
That was a double shot brought to you by Integrity Radio. That was my glass glass record collection. What? Love that record collection. I know. You know what? I think I sharpened the needle a little bit. You did? I, you sharpened Well, I did, and it sounded good again. And now I think it needs to be sharpened, like, better because now it's sounding good. When you hear that, it's, it's like doesn't sound like it's playing entirely right yeah it's because the needle isn't sharp, sharp enough. enough yeah or something else all i know is i did sharpen a little bit and when i played it it sounded fine uh, so if there, i wonder how often you have to sharpen uh, so if there's any victrola audio files out there uh that might know what to do to make it sound better let me know otherwise i i guess i just have to sharpen it yeah, just like you sharpen anything else, I guess, with a wet stone or dry stone or something. Yeah. So, uh, oops, here's Travis. <laughs> Better eat my breakfast. <laughs> Hope you enjoyed that. Hope you enjoyed it. So since I was here last, uh, in 06, uh, we discovered that uh, global climate change is turning out to be a pretty serious issue, so we covered that uh, fairly extensively in Skeptic Magazine. We investigate uh, all kinds of uh, scientific and quasi-scientific controversies. But it turns out we don't really have to worry about any of this because the world's going to end in 2012. Uh, another update, uh, you will recall, because uh, I introduced you guys to the Quadro Tracker. It's a, um, like a water dowsing device. It's just a hollow piece of plastic with an antenna that swivels around and you walk around and it points to things like if you're looking for marijuana in students' lockers, it'll, you know, like point right to some, somebody. Oh, sorry. Um, <laughs> this particular one that was given to me uh, finds golf balls, especially if you're at a golf course and you check under enough bushes. Well, under the category of what's the harm of silly stuff like this, this device, the ADE 651, was sold to the Iraqi government for $40,000 a piece. It's just like this one, completely worthless, in which it allegedly worked by electrostatic magnetic ion attraction, which translates to pseudoscientific baloney, would be the nice word, uh, which you string together uh, a bunch of words that sound good, but it does absolutely nothing. In this case, uh, allowing, uh, at, tr at uh, trespass points, allowing people to go through because your little tracker device said they were okay, actually cost lives. So there is a danger to pseudoscience in believing in uh, this sort of thing. So what I want to talk about today is belief. I want to believe, and, uh, and you do too. And in fact, I think my thesis here is that belief is the natural state of things. It is the default option. We just believe. We believe all sorts of things. Belief is natural. Disbelief, skepticism, science is not natural. It's, it's more difficult. It's uncomfortable to not believe things. So like Fox Mulder on X-Files who wants to believe in UFOs, uh, well, we all do. And the reason for that is because we, are, uh, we have a belief engine in our brains. Essentially, we are pattern-seeking primates. We connect the dots. A is connected to B. B is connected to C. And sometimes A really is connected to B. 
And that's called association learning. We find patterns. We make those connections. Whether it's Pavlov's dog here uh, associating the sound of the bell with the food and then he salivates to the sound of the bell, or whether it's a Skinnerian rat in which he's having an association between his behavior and a reward for it, and therefore he repeats the behavior. In fact, what Skinner discovered uh, is that if you put a pigeon in a box like this and he has to press one of these two keys and he tries to figure out what the pattern is and you give him a little reward in the hopper box there, if you just randomly assign rewards such that there is no pattern, they will figure out any kind of pattern and whatever they were doing just before they got the reward, they repeat that particular pattern. Sometimes it was even spinning around twice counterclockwise, once clockwise, and peck the key twice. Uh, and that's called superstition. And that, I'm afraid, we will always have with us. I call this process patternicity, that is, the tendency to find meaningful patterns in both meaningful and meaningless noise. When we do this process, we make two types of errors. A type one error or false positive uh, is believing a pattern is real when it's not. Our second type of error is a false negative. A type two error is not believing a pattern is real when it is. So let's uh, do a thought experiment. You are a hominid three million years ago walking on the plains of Africa. Your name is Lucy, okay. And, uh, and you hear a rustle in the grass. Is it a dangerous predator or is it just the wind? Your next decision could be the most important one of your life. Well, if you think that the rustle in the grass is, is a dangerous predator and it turns out it's just the wind, you've made an error in cognition. You made a type one error, a false positive. But no harm, you just move away, you're more cautious, you're more vigilant. On the other hand, if you believe that the rustle in the grass is just the wind and it turns out it's a dangerous predator, your lunch. You've just won a Darwin Award. You've been taken out of the gene pool. Now the problem here is that patternicities will occur whenever the cost of making a type 1 error is less than the cost of making a type 2 error. This is the only equation in the talk, by the way. We have a pattern detection problem that is assessing the difference between a type 1 and a type 2 error is highly problematic, especially in split-second life-and-death situations. So the default position is just believe all patterns are real. All rustles in the grass are dangerous predators and not just the wind. And so I think that we evolved. There was a natural selection for the propensity for our belief engines, our pattern-seeking brain processes to always find meaningful patterns and infuse them with these sort of predatory or intentional agencies that I'll come back to. So, for example, what do you see here? It's a horse head, that's right. It looks like a horse, must be a horse, that's a pattern. And is it really a horse or is it more like a frog? See, our pattern detection device, which is, appears to be located in the uh, anterior cingulate cortex, it's our little sort of detection device there, can be easily fooled and this is the problem. For example, what do you see here? Yes, of course, it's a cow. Once I prime the brain, it's called cognitive priming, once I prime the brain to see it, it pops back out again, even without the pattern that I've imposed on it. And what do you see here? Some people see a Dalmatian dog. Yes, there it is. And there's the prime. So when I go back, without the prime, your brain already has the model, so you can see it again. What do you see here? Planet Saturn. Yes, that's good. How about here? Just shout out anything you see. That's a good audience, Chris, because there's nothing in this. Well, allegedly, there's nothing. <laughs> this is an experiment done by Jennifer Whitson at um, 
at uh, UT Austin on uh, corporate environments and whether uncertain uh, feelings of uncertainty and out of control makes people see illusory patterns. That is, almost everybody sees the planet Saturn. People that are put in a condition of feeling out of control are more likely to see something in this, which is allegedly patternless. Uh, in other words, the propensity to feel these or find these patterns goes up when there's a lack of control. For example, baseball players are notoriously superstitious when they're batting, but not so much when they're fielding. Because fielders are successful 90 to 95 percent of the time. The best batters fail seven out of ten times. So their superstitions, their patternicities are all associated with feelings of lack of control uh, and, and so forth. What do you see in this particular one here, in this field? Anybody see an object there? There actually is something here, but it's degraded. While you're thinking about that, uh, this was an experiment done by Susan Blackmore, a psychologist in England, who showed subjects this degraded image and then ran a correlation between their scores on an ESP test, how much do they believe in the paranormal, supernatural, angels, and, and so forth. And those who scored high on the ESP scale tended to see, not only see more patterns in the degraded images, but incorrect patterns. Here is what uh, you show subjects, the fish, it's degraded, 20%, uh, 50%, and then the one I showed you, 70%. A similar experiment was done by another British psychologist named Peter Breuger, who found significantly more patterns, meaningful patterns, were received uh, perceived on the right hemisphere via the left visual field than the left hemisphere. So if you present subjects the images such that it's going to end up on the right hemisphere instead of the left, then they're more likely to see patterns than if you put it on the, the left hemisphere. Our right hemisphere appears to be where a lot of this patternicity occurs. So what we're trying to do is bore into the brain to see where all this happens. Breiger and his colleague Christine Moore gave subjects L-DOPA. L-DOPA is a drug, as you know, given for treating Parkinson's disease, which is related to a, a decrease in dopamine. L-DOPA increases dopamine. An increase in dopamine caused subjects to see more patterns than those that did not receive the dopamine. So dopamine appears to be the drug associated with patternicity. In fact, neuroleptic drugs that are used to eliminate psychotic behavior, things like paranoia, delusions, and hallucinations, these are patternicities. They're incorrect patterns, they're false positives, they're type 1 errors. And if you give them drugs that are a dopamine antagonists, they go away. That is, you decrease the amount of dopamine and their tendency to, to see uh, patterns like that uh, decreases. On the other hand, amphetamines like in cocaine are dopamine agonists. They increase the amount of dopamine. So you're more likely to be uh, feel in a euphoric state, creativity, find more patterns. In fact, I saw Robin Williams recently talk about how he, uh, he was, thought he was much funnier when he was doing cocaine when he had that issue than, than now. So perhaps more dopamine is related to more creativity. Dopamine, I think, changes our signal-to-noise ratio. That is, how accurate we are in finding patterns. If it's too low, you're more likely to make too many type 2 errors. You miss the real patterns. You don't want to be too skeptical. If you're too skeptical, you miss the really interesting good ideas. Just right, you're creative, and yet you don't fall for too much baloney. Too high, and maybe you see patterns everywhere. Every time somebody looks at you, you think people are staring at you, you think people are talking about you. And if you go too far on that, that's just simply labeled as madness. It's a distinction, perhaps, we might make between two Nobel laureates, Richard Feynman and John Nash. One sees maybe just the right number of patterns to win a Nobel Prize. The other one also, but maybe too many patterns, and we then call that schizophrenia.
So the signal-to-noise ratio uh, then presents us with a pattern detection problem. And of course, you all know exactly what this is, right? And what pattern do you see here? Again, I'm putting your anterior cingulate cortex to the test here, causing you conflicting pattern detections. You know, of course, this is via Uno shoes. These are sandals. <laughs> Pretty sexy feet, I must say. <laughs> Maybe a little photoshopped. And of course, the ambiguous figures that seem to flip-flop back and forth. Turns out what you're thinking about a lot influences what you um, <laughs> tend to see. And, I'm, and, and you see the lamp here, I know, because we have lights on here. Of course, thanks to the environmentalist movement, we're all sensitive to the plight of marine mammals. So what you see in this, in this particular ambiguous figure is, of course, the dolphins, right? You see a dolphin here, and, and, and there's a dolphin, and there's a dolphin. This is a dolphin. That's a dolphin tail there, guys. Um, if, if we can uh, give you conflicting data, again, your ACC is going to be going into hyperdrive. If you look down here, it's fine. If you look up here, then you get conflicting data, and then we have to flip the image for you to see that it's a setup. The impossible crate illusion, it's easy to fool the brain in 2D. So you say, oh, come on, Shermer, anybody can do that in a Psych 101 text with an illusion like that. Well, well, here's the late, great Jerry Andrus's impossible crate illusion in 3D, in which Jerry is standing inside the impossible crate. And uh, he was uh, kind enough to post this and give us the reveal. Of course, camera angle is everything. The photographer is over there, and this board appears to overlap with this one, and this one, and that one, and so on. But even when I take it away, the illusion is so powerful because of how our brains are wired to find those certain kinds of patterns. This is a fairly new one that throws us off because of the conflicting patterns of comparing this angle with that angle. In fact, it's the exact same picture side by side. So what you're doing is comparing that angle instead of with this one, but with that one, and so your brain is fooled. Yet again, your pattern detection devices are fooled. Faces are easy to see because we have an additional evolved facial recognition software in our uh, temporal lobes. Here's some faces on the side of a rock. I'm actually not even sure if this is, this might be Photoshop, but anyway, the point is still made. Uh, which one of these looks odd to you? And a quick reaction, which one looks odd? The one on the left. Okay, I'll rotate it so it'll be the one on the right, and you are correct. Fairly famous illusion that was first done with Margaret Thatcher. Now they, they trade up to politicians every time. Well, why is this happening? Well, we know exactly where it happens in the temporal lobe, right across, sort of above your ear there, in a little structure called the fusiform gyrus. And there's two types of cells that do this, that record facial features, either globally or specifically these large rapid-firing cells. First, look at the general face, so you recognize Obama immediately. And then you notice something quite a little bit odd about the eyes and the mouth, especially when they're upside down. You're engaging that general facial recognition software there. Now, I said back in our little um, thought experiment, you're a hominid walking on the plains of Africa. Is it just the wind or a dangerous predator? What's the difference between those? Well, a wind is inanimate, a dangerous predator is an intentional agent. And I call this process agenicity, that is the tendency to infuse patterns with meaning, intention, and agency, often invisible beings from the top down. This is an idea that we got from a fellow Tedster here, uh, Dan Dennett, who talked about in taking the intentional stance. So it's a type of that expanded to explain, I think, a lot of different things. Souls, spirits, ghosts, gods, demons, angels, aliens, intelligent designers, government conspiracists, and all manner of invisible agents.
with power and intention are believed to haunt our world and control our lives. I think it's the basis of animism and polytheism and monotheism. It's the belief that aliens are somehow more advanced than us, more moral than us, and the narratives always are that they're coming here to save us and rescue us uh, from on high. The intelligent designer is always portrayed as this super-intelligent moral being that comes down to design life. Even the idea that government can rescue us, that's no longer the wave of the future. But that is, I think, a type of agenticity. The projecting somebody up there, big and powerful, will come rescue us. And this is also, I think, the basis of conspiracy theories. There's somebody hiding behind there, pulling the strings, uh, whether it's uh, the Illuminati or the Bilderbergers. But this is a detection problem, isn't it? Some patterns are real and some are not. Was JFK assassinated by a, a conspiracy or by a lone assassin? Well, if you go there, uh, there's people there on any given day, like when I went there here, showing me where the different shooters were. My favorite one was he was in the manhole, and he popped out at the last second and took that shot. But of course, Lincoln was assassinated by a conspiracy, so we can't just uniformly dismiss all patterns like that, because let's face it, some patterns are real. Some conspiracies really are true. <laughs> Explains a lot, maybe. Uh, and 9-11 as a conspiracy theory. It is a conspiracy. We did a whole issue on it. 19 members of Al-Qaeda plotting to fly planes into buildings constitutes a conspiracy, but that's not what the 9-11 truthers think. They think it was an inside job by the Bush administration. Well, that's a whole other lecture, but you know how we know that 9-11 was not orchestrated by the Bush administration? Because it worked. So we are natural-born dualists. Our agenticity process comes from the fact that we can enjoy movies like these because we can imagine, in essence, uh, continuing on. We know that if you stimulate the temporal lobe, you can produce a feeling of out-of-body experiences, near-death experiences, which you can do by just touching an electrode to the temporal lobe there. Or you can do it through loss of consciousness by accelerating in a centrifuge. You get a hypoxia or a lower oxygen, and the brain then senses that uh, there's an out-of-body so the last clip that you didn't get because there was really no audio, Dr. Michael Shermer was showing a, a girl that was supposedly testing lip balm on some very good looking men, but they were blindfolded. And then instead of the men, they brought monkeys in and had the girls um, kissing monkeys and they uh, were nonetheless the wise. I had the honor of having Dr. Michael Shermer in an audience during a TAM talk that I gave regarding the woo in martial arts. I've read many of Dr. Shermer's books and really appreciate his approach. Um, I think with the passing of Christopher Hitchens, Michael Shermer really should become one of the four horsemen. Along with Richard Dawkins, Daniel Dennett, and Sam Harris. I hope you enjoyed that. This is Z with Integrity Radio. The great player Jaco Pistorius, the late great Jaco Pistorius, was interviewed and he was asked a question, I won't give it away, so I'm going to play this clip, but he was asked a question and Jaco gave him a very 
simple and straightforward answer. And boy, do I resonate with that answer. <laughs> and you might as well. Check it out. You know, a lot has been said about you, but the main thing is that people recognize the fact that you're able to play with real sincerity every style of music, not only every style, but you can play all parts of a given piece at the same time on this one instrument, the bass. Now because of this, a lot of people have gone crazy trying to duplicate what you do. People have become great fans of the bass and given it quite a bit of attention. How do you really feel about that? Give me a gig, you know. <laughs> I don't know if you caught that. That was someone interviewing one of the greatest bass players in the world. And he asked for a gig. He said, would someone hire me then? This is not a unique situation. Van Gogh never sold a painting. He died having never sold a painting. And I personally know better musicians than are known to the general public. By far, they are better musicians than what is known as the best musicians in the world. This is why I say you have to do your art for yourself first and foremost. Because some people are lucky and they get some appreciation in their lifetime, but many aren't. And I would perhaps even argue that great art is discovered well after the life of the artist. Integrity Radio. A person like that is never, never gone. Because time is only, time as we know it is not really time. I think there's only, there's only one time, at one time. And when you speak about someone and you think about someone in the moment now, then that's what it is now. Not that it was almost 20 years ago, but that it is now. And therefore these people will never die. And uh, there's nothing to miss, it's the whole thing, it was a uh, fun, you know. And uh, one should never cry that it's over with, one should be happy that it was. Well, you know, he has a nice combination. You know, he has music that has depth, but he's also, you know, he plays things that catch a young ear. You know what I mean? He plays like harmonics and he plays with distortion, and he plays with all these things that a young person would go, oh, that's cool, you know. But after they get initially brought in, then they can start to begin to appreciate the deeper aspects of his music too. So he had an appeal on every level, and I think that's what makes his music last. Thank mm -hmm. you.
Guys, they just posted a couple segments from Raymond K. If you're listening on Anchor, you'll hear them. If you're not on Anchor, you won't hear them, but I'll just give you a brief rundown. Uh, he was talking about doing it, just doing the things that need to be taken care of, taking care of it one step at a time and breaking it down, setting them up, knocking them down. And then another thing that he talked about, which was quite uh, clever, was not creating boomerangs, what he called boomerangs. Very nice. Uh, meaning, uh, don't do things that are only going to come back at you. Um, sort of bite you in the ass, so to speak. And these were very inspirational to me because doing it is sort of succeeding and getting over that paralysis uh, through analysis. And then the whole idea of not creating boomerangs, the whole idea of doing things right, focusing and doing things right so you don't just give yourself more work. Thank you, Raymond K. Integrity Radio. That's very kind, thank you very much. I'm offended by some things. I'm offended by chewing gum. I'm offended by backwards-pointing baseball hats. <laughs> but I don't try to get a version of the blasphemy law passed to prevent people chewing gum or reversing their cap. So what if I'm offended? So what if my feelings are hurt? Does that give me the right to prevent others from expressing their opinions? However, is there a time when it is right to be offended? I think so, yes. We should be offended when children are denied a proper education. We should be offended when children are told they will spend eternity in hell. We should be offended when medical science, for example, stem cell research, is compromised by... Compromised, I should say, by the bigoted opinions of powerful and, above all, well-financed ignoramuses. <laughs> we should be offended when voodoo of all kinds 
is given equal weight to science. We should be offended by hymen reconstruction surgery. We should be offended by female circumcision, euphemism for genital mutilation. This, this picture was taken in Africa, but it happens in Britain. I had a, a long conversation with a school's inspector from London, and she told me it's common. Girls are typically sent away to stay with an uncle in Bradford. We should be offended by stoning. This young Kurdish woman was stoned to death in a so-called honor killing because she wanted to marry a young man of the wrong religion. I mentioned the novelist Kingsley Amis a moment ago. His son, Martin Amis, is an equally distinguished novelist. And he made a very important point. Secularism contains no warrant for action. One can afford to be crude about this. When Islamists crash passenger planes into, into buildings or hack off the heads of hostages, they shout, God is great. When secularists do that kind of thing, what do they shout? A critic of Martin Amis's book remarked upon, on this. That question is meant to be rhetorical, but there's a simple answer. They shout, secularists shout, Heil Hitler. What a truly outrageous thing to say. Whether or not Hitler was a Roman Catholic, the evidence is contradictory, he often said he was, nobody could deny that Hitler's soldiers were as Christian as everybody else was in Europe at the time, and that means that most of them were, mostly either Roman Catholic or Lutheran. But even if Hitler was an atheist, so what? Hitler was also a vegetarian. Does that suggest that vegetarians have a special tendency to be murderous, bigoted racists? The point is that there is a logical pathway leading from religion to the committing of atrocities. It's perfectly logical. If you believe that your religion is the right one, you believe that your God is the only God, and you believe that your God has ordered you through a priest or through a holy book, to kill somebody, to blow somebody up, to fly a plane into a skyscraper, then you are doing a righteous act. You're a good person. You're following your religious morality. There is no such logical pathway leading from atheism or secularism to any such atrocious act. It just doesn't follow. Seriously, why, why, why would I de decline to debate with, with, with creationists? Would you, if you were a, um, a geographer, agree to have a debate with a flat earther? <laughs> there comes a point when you have to say you are, uh, by, by, by agreeing to appear on a platform with somebody like that, you are giving them status. If a real scientist appears on a, on a platform, uh, if, say, a reproductive scientist appeared on a platform with an advocate of the stalk theory of... <laughs> Thank you. Um, but I will, I will say this, that um, uh, I've never actually dared to use the formula that my colleague Robert May, Lord May, who is one of Britain's most... Actually, he's Australian, come to think of it. Um, uh, <laughs> 
most distinguished scientist. Uh, he, he was the government uh, chief scientific advisor for a while and then president of the Royal Society. Um, what he says when he's asked to have a debate with a, with a creationist is, that would look great on your CV, not so good on mine.
Yoshi. Thanks for your comments about the boomerang. Yeah, I agree. I think more people should be aware of just how much a difference it makes, you know, when you send off good quality versus sort of knee-jerk reactions by email or whatever. And I think actually people need to be more aware of it. So I think maybe later on when I have more time, I will spend more time just putting that symbol out and maybe making it as a sort of, uh, you know, icons you can have on your your iPhone or Android or whatever to sort of share that concept just like you have other icons out there, um, emoticons. So yeah, thanks, thanks for your comments. Um, that's really encouraging. I hope you have a great day. Ciao. Hey Raymond, this is Z at Integrity Radio. I really like your post on not creating boomerangs. I actually, I really like your first post too of doing things one step at a time. Uh, it, yeah. So uh, thank you for posting that. It's good stuff. We all need to hear stuff like that. But boy, if we could get the world to embrace this stop creating boomerangs, stop creating things that are just going to come back at you. <laughs> yeah, brilliant. Thanks. Hey everybody, Z here. I just found out something very interesting about Anchor. You can now listen to audiobooks on Anchor. How, you may ask? Well, I'm going to post an audiobook. Now, you're going to say you can only do five-minute sections. And what are you doing? Are you going to just uh, stitch them all together? Um, no, no. I'm going to introduce the book. So you'll hear the first five-minute section of the book. And then if you want to read or listen to the whole book, you can just click on the link of the title and you will go right to the entire book. So what I'm going to list first is for my students of Wing Chun, I am going to create what would be a required reading, or in this case, required listening. So these, uh, for instance, this next book that I'm going to post up is over 11 hours long. So you'll definitely want to pace yourself. Um, but it is work and I really do hope that you take on the work of listening to these audiobooks. And you know, if, you, if you're kind of listening to these audiobooks in the background and something stimulates your interest, you can always go and pick up the book and then read uh, at your own leisure. Okay, I hope you enjoy the first audiobook that I will be posting is called The God Delusion by Richard Dawkins. Enjoy. Oh, and even if you're not a student of mine and you would like to listen to these or if you've already read or listened to these books, I'd love to hear your comment. Okay, now, enjoy. Integrity Radio. The gay pride movement, it is possible, though still not very easy, for a homosexual to be elected to public office. A Gallup poll taken in 1999 
asked Americans whether they would vote for an otherwise well-qualified person who was a woman, 95% would, Roman Catholic, 94% would, Jew, 92%, Black, 92%, Mormon, 79%, Homosexual, 79%, or Atheist, 49%. Clearly, we have a long way to go. But atheists are a lot more numerous, especially among the educated elite, than many realize. This was so even in the 19th century when John Stuart Mill was already able to say, The world would be astonished if it knew how great a proportion of its brightest ornaments, of those most distinguished even in popular estimation for wisdom and virtue, are complete skeptics in religion. This must be even truer today, and indeed I present evidence for it in Chapter 3. The reason so many people don't notice atheists is that many of us are reluctant to come out. My dream is that this book may help people to come out. Exactly as in the case of the gay movement, the more people come out, the easier it will be for others to join them. There may be a critical mass for the initiation of a chain reaction. American polls suggest that atheists and agnostics far outnumber religious Jews, and even outnumber most other particular religious groups. Unlike Jews, however, who are notoriously one of the most effective political lobbies in the United States, and unlike evangelical Christians, who wield even greater political power, atheists and agnostics are not organized, and therefore exert almost zero influence. Indeed, organizing atheists has been compared to herding cats, because they tend to think independently and will not conform to authority. But a good first step would be to build up a critical mass of those willing to come out, thereby encouraging others to do so. Even if they can't be herded, cats in sufficient numbers can make a lot of noise, and they cannot be ignored. The word delusion in my title has disquieted some psychiatrists who regard it as a technical term not to be banded about. Three of them wrote to me to propose a special technical term for religious delusion, relusion. Maybe it'll catch on, but for now I'm going to stick with delusion, and I need to justify my use of it. The Penguin English Dictionary defines a delusion as a false belief or impression. Surprisingly, the illustrative quotation the dictionary gives is from Philip E. Johnson. Darwinism is the story of humanity's liberation from the delusion that its destiny is controlled by a power higher than itself. Can that be the same Philip E. Johnson who leads the creationist charge against Darwinism in America today? Indeed it is, and the quotation is, as we might expect, taken out of context. I hope the fact that I have stated as much will be noted, since the same courtesy has not been extended to me in numerous creationist quotations of my works, deliberately and misleadingly taken out of context. Whatever Johnson's own meaning, his sentence as it stands is one that I would be happy to endorse. The dictionary supplied with Microsoft Word defines a delusion as a persistent false belief held in the face of strong contradictory evidence, especially as a symptom of psychiatric disorder. The first part captures religious faith perfectly. As to whether it is a symptom of psychiatric disorder, I'm inclined to follow Robert M. Persig, author of Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. When one person suffers from a delusion, it is called insanity. When many people suffer from a delusion, it is called religion. If this book works as I intend, religious readers who open it 
will be atheists when they put it down. What presumptuous optimism. Of course, dyed-in-the-wool faith heads are immune to argument. Their resistance built up over years of childhood indoctrination using methods that took centuries to mature, whether by evolution or design. Among the more effective immunological devices is a dire warning to avoid even opening a book like this, which is surely a work of Satan. But I believe there are plenty of open-minded people out there, people whose childhood indoctrination was not too insidious, or for other reasons didn't take, or whose native intelligence is strong enough to overcome it. Such free spirits should need only a little encouragement to break free of the vice of religion altogether. At very least, I hope that nobody who reads this book will be able to say, I didn't know I could. More was never enough. I'm 86 years old, and sadly, I'm basically sitting on my deathbed. I have millions of dollars in the bank, but I can't buy health to save my life now. I have family and millions of fans around the world, but I'm all alone now. Not even my children or a long estranged wife or brother stand around my deathbed. I left my life wrong, and I don't want this to happen to you. If you listen and take evasive action, I can help you change your future. The following few moments may very well change your life, and I wish someone had told me this when I was your age. Money is not evil by itself. It's just paper with perceived value to obtain other things we value in other ways. If not money, what is evil, you may ask? Evil is the unquenchable, obsessive, and moral-bending desire for more. Evil is the bottomless, soulless, and obsessive-compulsive pursuit of some pot of gold at the end of some rainbow which doesn't exist. Evil is having a price tag for your heart and soul in exchange for financial success at any cost. Evil is trying to buy happiness again and again until all of those fake, short-lived mirages of emotions are gone. Imagine having it all, only to lose it all. You are now broke. All the money is gone. What do you have? The only solution to your madness and happiness was acquiring more. Now you have no more means to acquire fake happiness. No more means to acquire more. So, who are you now? Well, all the people now, who you thought were your friends while the money was flowing in. You might have lost your family, friends, and mostly everyone in the world thinks you're a self-centered, egotistical asshole. Why? Because of your endless pursuit for more, clouded your mind and diverted you from your true purpose in life. Does this hit an emotional chord in you? Did it depress or sadden you? I almost said good, but I will say this only because I want you to change. I'm not saying you can't be financially successful. I'm saying have a greater purpose in life, well beyond the pursuit of financial success. Your soul is screaming for you to answer your true calling. You can change today if you redefine what success is to you. 
You can transform your damaged relationships and build new ones. You can forgive yourself and others who've hurt you. You can become a leader by mentoring with others who you aspire to be like. You can rebalance your priorities in life. You can heal your marriage and recreate a stronger love than you ever thought possible. You can become the best parent possible at any age, even 86. But don't wait until then. You'll always be able to make more money. But you cannot make more time. One day, just like me, you'll die too. What do you want to be remembered for? What can you do for others to make the world a better place? What is your true purpose on this earth? We are all dying, but only a small select few are truly living. You can step out of the shadows, into the light. You are meant for greatness. You are meant for more than just what you do for a living. You are an eternal being meant to inspire and help the world. Let's get it right once and for all in this lifetime. Today, you step into the world where true love exists. And you finally realize that love, in fact, is the more you've wanted your whole life. Just love more and more, every day in every way. And never give up. Regardless of how challenging your destiny in life will be, the world really needs you now more than ever. Together with love, compassion, forgiveness and faith in humanity, we will defeat evil once and for all.
calling in response to your multitasking segment, and I am definitely not a multitasker uh, at heart. Uh, I kind of was thinking that multitasking kind of reminds me of mathematics. Like, you could probably learn to be a multitasker if you work hard at it. And then for some people, it probably comes harder uh, than for others. I would have to say that there's probably good things and bad things about both approaches. But that is an assumption. So I like that you're kind of deep digging deeper in to see if this is, um, you know, what is the true nature of multitasking? Can it be done? Thank you. Hello, Integrity Radio. Arigato. And you and your family would spend good time on your vacation. And I have many, many things to do for my family. And I have to go to your mother in law. She's my husband's mother. And she's elder people. And now she's in her hospital. But I want to have my pleasure. So I would go somewhere which I really want to go. Anyway, thank you. See you. またね
natural man He doesn't want your pleasure He wants us no one can He wants to know the names of all those is better than Two little whippers will fight it out until One little lifter does it otherwise Well, I will return One of the most amazing discoveries, it completely surprised me, and that's what I like most in research, is when you learn something you didn't know you are going to learn. That's very different from research where you prove something you think you already know. You have to do that too, because maybe you were wrong, but when you discover something you didn't expect, that's really exciting. And what we discovered, published this in Oh, 20, more than 20 years ago, made the front page of the New York Times. We didn't kill anybody. What it did was show that if you put on your face one of the universal expressions, you will turn on the physiology of emotion. You will begin to experience that emotion. So the face is not simply a display system that tells you what's happening inside me. I can self-generate any emotion by making the movements on my face. Now, some of them are harder to make than others, and wouldn't you know it, the one that's hardest to make is the one that turns on enjoyment, because a smile alone won't do it. You have to be able to activate one of the muscles around the eyes, and only about 10% of the people we've tested can do it. We are just beginning to use this discovery of how you can self-generate emotion to teach people how to become more aware of what they're feeling at the moment they feel it. Because it is my belief, and I want to underline the word belief because I can't prove this, it's my belief that the way in which emotions evolved it was to deal with things like saber-toothed tigers, the current incarnation of which is the car that's suddenly lurching at your car at a high speed. You don't have time to think. You have to do and make very complex decisions. Think of what you do to avoid that car. You make, in split seconds, estimates of speed and angle and what you need to do with your feet and your hands. And if you had to think about what you were doing, you'd be dead. So it's a system that evolved to deal with really important things without your thinking about it. So that means that sometimes you're going to be very unconsidered, very thoughtless. Sometimes your emotions aren't going to fit the situation and you're not even going to know it until someone says to you, what are you getting so upset about? And you think, oh my God, that's right. I'm really afraid. I don't know why, why maybe I shouldn't. Maybe I misunderstood the situation. Well, these exercises that we're giving people, moving their facial muscles, concentrating on the sensations that they then experience to make them more aware of an emotion 
when it arises so that they will feel it at the moment and then can say, did she really mean to ignore me when she put the toast on the table? No, it was just an accident. Or maybe I shouldn't jump to the conclusion that she doesn't care about me at all. Why doesn't she care about me? That whole business, it takes the way in which we can improve our emotional life is to introduce conscious awareness into the process and that will take practice and nature did not want you to do that.
morning till you realize you're in it now. Fear is here to stay. Love is here for it feels a day. Call it instant justice when it's past the legal limit. Someone scratching at the window. I wonder who is it? The detectives come to check if you belong to the parents. Who better to hear the worst about their daughter's disappearance. So nearly took a miracle to get you to stay. It only took my little fingers to blow you up. Watch her detectives Don't get used Watch her detectives I get so angry when the teardrops start But you can't be rooted when you got no heart Got no heart Watch the detectives. Watch the tempted to say smart, creative people have no particularly different set of character traits than the rest of us except for being smart and creative, and those being character traits. And then on the other hand, I wrote a biography of Richard Feynman and a biography of Isaac Newton. Now there are two great scientific geniuses whose characters were in some superficial ways completely different. Isaac Newton was solitary, antisocial, I think unpleasant, um, bitter, fought with his friends as much as with his enemies. Richard Feynman was gregarious, funny, a great dancer, uh, loved women. Um, Isaac Newton, I believe, never had sex. Richard Feynman, I believe, had plenty. Um, so you can't generalize there. On the other hand, they were both, as I tried to get in their heads, understand their minds, the, the nature of their genius, I sort of felt I was seeing things that they had in common. And, and they were things that had to do with aloneness, um, Newton was much more obviously alone than Feynman, but Feynman didn't particularly work well with others. Uh, he was known as a great teacher, but he wasn't a great teacher, I don't think, one-on-one. -on -one. I think he was a great lecturer. I think he was a great communicator. But when it came time to make the great discoveries of science, he was alone in his head. And now I'm talking, when I say he, I mean both Feynman and Newton. And this applies also, I think, to the, the geniuses um, that I write about in the information. Charles Babbage, Alan Turing, Ada Byron. They all had 
the ability to concentrate with a sort of intensity that is um, hard for mortals like me to grasp, a kind of a passion for abstraction uh, that doesn't lend itself to easy communication, I don't think.
Oh, thank you. That was beautiful. A beautiful piano piece. A keyboard. Was it keyboard? You have a keyboard, right? Not a piano. I've wanted to teach myself to play the piano, but I just haven't yet. I don't have a keyboard anymore. It's a wonderful instrument. I like um, Oscar Peterson. As a, he's a very good pianist as well as, um, you know, well Duke Wellington and Ray Charles is pretty good. Enjoy all that stuff. Oh, and I was listening to your SoundCloud and I was jamming to it, SoundCloud Music for Dogs, and I I just forgot to record as I was jamming to it because it's just one song played after the other and I just kept listening and jamming and figuring it out. Some of it was challenging, but it was great. session between Ronnie, two dogs, and myself. <laughs> Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
to this. Yeah, if you just can't hear it, look at the beat. There he goes.
Yo, I was just listening to your music and could totally picture some kind of like, you know, a cast of individuals in an intergalactic space vehicle traveling through space. And that's, and that's the background music, was that, uh, subtle, subtle talking, talking with subtle voices or something like that. The one, you just posted it. My brother's been playing this space discovery game, so I watch him, and be like, wow, I could totally hear Sifu's music in this game, in my head. <laughs> This one goes out to Chad's head.
your opinion. Do you think you think Chad will like this? Yeah, this is for Chad's head, so a little space space out music for Chad's head. Yeah, think I'll like it? You like it. It seems like he likes it. <laughs>